Welcome to the Running Explained podcast. I'm your host, Elizabeth. I'm a marathoner, coach, and answer seeker. When I first started running at the age of 29, I had so many questions and what felt like nowhere to turn to for answers. And now I'm here to answer all your running questions about anything that you might want to know. If you're a new runner or you've been doing this for a long time, there's always something more to learn about running. So let's get started. My guest this week is returning guest physical therapist, Dr. Lauren LaPierre. You may remember Lauren from her appearance back on season two, Your Knees and Running, and this is Your Knees and Running part two. This week we're talking about the knee joint, the tissues, the way that different tissues load and develop, offensive versus defensive strength training, how to use a setback as a set up for a comeback, and more all relating to your knees and running. So if you ever have any questions about, well, your knees and running, this episode is for you. Lauren, welcome back to the show. I'm excited to have you here. Thank you. It's so great to be back. So for people who are unfamiliar with you based on your appearance in season two podcast, talking about your knees and running, go ahead and briefly reintroduce yourself and tell us who you are. So my name is Dr. Lauren Lapierre. I am a physical therapist. I consider myself a runner rehab, runner rehab specialist um, because I've been specializing runners for the last like four or five years. And I am a endurance runner. I've been running since I think I was like 12 or 13 years old, went into competitive high school, then college, took a break because like most runners, I had a little bit of like a negative kind of experience with running after being so competitive with it for so long and then came back into it and started running marathons and now I might be changing it up and going back to the 5k and mile and 800. I've never ran or raced an 800 so I like told my coach that I wanted to do that recently and he was like I'm all for it and I'm like great that's awesome. (laughs) Oh my god I love it two two and a half minutes of just pure suffering. (laughs) Yeah and like I know it sounds crazy but like going from the marathon and like just like essentially going from like that slow fire to like flash fire. <laughs> it sounds fun to me and it, it's also only two minutes. So like you can, you really can do anything for two minutes. Which is what I tell myself during workouts for much longer race. <laughs> can you do anything? Just come on, two more minutes. You can do anything for two minutes. Yeah. So, I like, I did a tempo right? today and it was like seven minutes and I was like, oh God, seven minutes. It's so long. <laughs> so two minutes, two minutes is nothing. <laughs> So today we are talking again about knees and running because, oh my gosh, I feel like this is, I want to say everybody's like introductory injury in running, (laughs) right? Knee injuries, knee pain, knee issues, so common in runners. And even for runners who've never had a knee injury, somebody somewhere has said to them, hey, didn't you know that running is actually bad for your knees? Which we thoroughly debunked on the last episode uh, that we did together in season two. But we're back today with you to talk to about more like a an update on some of the research and things that you should know about your knees. We're going to get more in-depth about the science and how your knee works and how your knee specifically works when you're running. But first, I want to start, if somebody hasn't listened to this season two episode, with a very basic reintroduction to uh, why running is, a, why one of the most common running-related injuries centers around knee pain and knee soreness. And I'll 
I'll start this off with uh, something, a kind of an am amalgamation of conversations that I usually have with uh, new run runners who are new to my world or people who I don't coach, but like are, you know, find out that I'm a running coach and they want to tell me about their running. And it usually also ends with a, oh, and yeah, I mean, running, you know, usually my knees get a little sore, but then I ice them afterwards. I don't know. Maybe I'm just not built for long distances. Maybe I'm just getting older. Maybe my knees just can't handle it anymore. And it's like, I, I, my whole body just, it just to be like, well, actually, <laughs> because like what like you talked about, right? There are a lot, the, the knee is under a lot of stress and strain and plays a really like central role in running. Mm -hmm. Um, but running itself is not bad for your knees. So spill the tea on this. What, what are we, what is actually happening when we're experiencing this? So a lot of times uh, what I see happens um, if we're going to like break down some of the mechanics and this is kind of how I talk about it when I get on like a discovery call with somebody interested working with me and say they have knee pain and like I'm trying even if they have other pains, but I really haven't specialized in the knee yet, but I I'm like five steps from like just saying like I'm going to focus on knees moving forward because like it is an area that I really have a lot of passion about. Um, but somebody has pain in their knees, oftentimes there's a lot of other minor injuries that happen that they just don't even kind of think about. A big thing that I hear quite often um, is there's some form of like achiness, tightness that they either feel in their hips or inversely they'll feel in their feet and in their shins. That is something very, very common and I hear from new runners. And part of that, part of that initial like achiness that they feel there, um, they don't necessarily address. They kind of just keep running through it because they're like, well, it's what it is, what it is. <laughs> it's running. Um, and they keep running through it and they just kind of ignore it. And either it goes away or then things start to translate and kind of show up and pop up in the knee. And how I essentially kind of like equate this is think of it as like a four by one. In a four by one, you have to have that perfect handoff from each runner to the next runner to have this seamless like run around the track and finish and strong. And if there's at any point one of those people that is like missing kind of the handoff, they're not sticking at the right point, they're not grabbing the baton at the right point, the next person's gonna have to pick up the slack and the next person and the next person, next person. So if there is an issue when you land, when it comes to either at the foot and the ankle or at the hip, because there should be co-contractions happening throughout the entire lower extremity. If there is a kind of like misstep there and something is not picking up the slack, there's going to be another muscle that'll pick up the slack. And oftentimes the knee is a very strong joint. The knee is very durable. It is meant to take on a lot of compressive load and it's very efficient in that way. And then we have very big and strong quad muscles that will also take on that force for us. And so oftentimes what I see happens is maybe we're not getting that seamless translation through the foot, the calf, the hamstrings, and the glutes, which should be the primary drivers in running with the posterior chain. But, and so if we're not getting that, then essentially the quads will kick on a little bit more. And then the quads are taking on more load. And then that puts more kind of anterior force onto the knee, onto the knee joint, or laterally underneath like the IT band or medially into more of 
a lot of people think like MCL or meniscus area. So like then we just start experiencing knee pain. And so that's kind of what I typically see happen when people start to like report knee pain. It can be frustrating though, especially as a runner and you're, you're experiencing this kind of like non-specifically kind of point to like your whole knee area or maybe kind of like on the upper or the lower, but it's not like you can point to this one very, and say it hurts right here. It's like my whole joint's kind of sore. Like my whole mm-hmm. joint's a little bit achy and like, you know, can, is it the joint itself? Like, is it literally the joint that's experiencing soreness or what are the tissues that are reacting and causing the soreness? Yeah, it's a great question. So I would say like, yes, there's sometimes like pinpoint sharp, like tension that people can feel and like kind of say like it's inside the knee. And usually that happens with like quick, fast movements or turning movements. And that's when we're probably thinking that there's some mechanism actually within the knee, um, like meniscus that could be kind of either torn or starting to fray or and like it's essentially catching when like the knee joint is compressed and getting some torque through it. Oftentimes though when people say that they have like general soreness around the knee joint, the knee joint as it's as itself in like the entire joint has a lot of connective tissue surrounding it from all of the attachments of all of the muscles 360 degrees around that, um, that leg. So you have your quadriceps and your quadricep tendons, you have your adductors, your abductors, your hamstrings, you have your calves, you have your anterior tib. All of those muscles are essentially creating this fibrous like tissue and like encasing around the knee joint. And they're taking on load. They should be assisting and transferring the load. That is that they should be the majority kind of factor taking on some of that joint force there. Um, And when they're not strong enough, which we can make them stronger through exercise, through specific types of exercise, you're not going to get as much force happening through the knee. But if we don't have that connective tissue strength, whether that be the ligaments, tendons, um, or even connective tissue, that's when you're going to feel like achiness in the joint specifically. This kind of non-specific knee pain, anecdotally, I tend to hear it most from newer runners or running who are returning to running after a lot of time off. It rarely is something that I, I, in my experience, shows up with somebody who's been like consistently running for years at a relatively like, you know, I'm say high level. That just means consistently training over time, right? In an appropriate way. But this, this is something where we tend to see people who are like, ow, running, like I've started running, I've restarted running, now my knee hurts, guess it's not for me, maybe I should do something else instead. Yeah, and this happens a lot because people, honestly, people just overestimate like what their ability to progressively overload is. It, tru- it, like, it truly just comes back to how much you're increasing the stress on your body week by week. And a big conversation that I have with my clients is it's it's not just the stress that you're doing in training. Like you have to realize that the other stresses that you have in your life from your job, from your family, from just you being a person and having an emotional connection to the life around you is going to also create stress. And I mean, if you travel for work, that's a big thing that I see often really impacts a lot of runners and they don't realize that that travel really can create a lot of load and demand on their body. Um, But a big thing that I like try to get people to like be a little bit more 
mindful and introspective on is just think about the overall stresses that you're experiencing in your life, mental, emotional, and physical. And can you increase that load physically with your training like at the same time? Can your body really handle that? And oftentimes, again, most people discount the, the mental and emotional loads. They just keep building on the physical loads. And then all of a sudden something starts to hurt. And it's, it's not usually just the physical, though there could be a fast increase there typically with new runners, um, just kind of building and building and building and maybe doing like a lot of back-to-back runs. Um, but they're also discounting those other things that may be increasing the load. Now, obviously, it's going to be very dependent on what's going on, the individual runner, you know, how we would address this. But do you have any immediate like, hey, if this is you, here are a couple things you can try at home to help improve that strength that we're talking about building? Yeah. Um, And I can give you so I voice over and film all of my exercises for my clients. I can like give you a couple of these so that you can put it in the show notes for people. Um, I'm a really big fan of isometrics. Uh, One reason is because they're natural pain relievers. They're analgesic exercises. And they specifically kind of target that musculotendinous junction at the joint. And that is like directly applicable to a lot of how the muscles work when it comes to running. There's a lot of isometric and eccentric force that's happening when we're running. And so one of those exercises would be like a hamstring bridge. So this is a different way to use your foam roller, but what you would essentially do is like lie on the floor. You'd have your knees and your hips bent. You would have the arch of your foot or your midfoot on the foam roller push your midfoot down into the foam roller, scoop your hips up, and you're going to immediately feel your calves and your hamstrings like turn on like that. Not that they ever turn off, but you're going to just feel them kind of leverage and work a little bit harder. And it burns. (laughs) Um, And that's a great exercise because it really gets that co-activation through your posterior chain. Um, So that would be probably one of the first exercises I would always recommend for a runner Um, and you can do that single or double legged, depending upon like what your abilities are. And then another basic exercise is I think something that is probably again, not often like utilized enough. And that would be like a wall sit because you're supported against the wall. So you're kind of getting some of that load actually off of you versus doing like active squats. And you can then just find the position of coming down. Hips are going to be bent to around 90 degrees. Knees are going to be bent to at least 90, if not a little bit more, so that you're getting a little bit of that knees over toes. You're getting that at least knee over midfoot action because that kind of translates to more of how the gait cycle works, where we need that knee translation over the foot to help propel us forward. And then to kind of spice it up a little bit more, again, use that foam roller in a different way. Put it in between your thighs and squeeze to get your inner thighs on because your inner thighs are one of the muscles that are on 100% of the time during the gait cycle. So like if, if there's a muscle I wish people would focus on more, it's actually inner thighs versus like abductors and glute med and all of that. Like those are important. Yes. Quads are important. Glutes are important, but let's get a little bit more of those inner thighs and hamstrings on. 
oh my God, I'm going to add these to my routine. I'm like, yeah, I don't know. Last time I did isometrics. Um, that's fascinating. I think for a lot of us, we probably haven't done wall sits since, you know, gym class in high school. Uh, mm-hmm. At least that's me. Um, oh my God, I have so many follow-up questions just from what you were talking about that deviate from the outline that I know that we were chatting about before we started this episode. Um, tell me more. Okay, so I'm thinking about, and I just did this whole episode about hips. And obviously we talked about the importance of using, you know, hips or, or stabilizing, right? The you know, hips, stability in your hips and how it's not just your glute med. But now I'm thinking about, you know, the way that we stabilize our knees obviously comes from both outside and inside the the leg. And so we're saying the adductors, that inside thigh muscle, that is always on, always working, always contracting in some way throughout the entire gait cycle. And yet, like, this is not ever something we see people shouting from the rooftops about. No. Yeah. It's because the attachment points of this muscle, so there's like three main adductors and then there's some accessory ones, but the attachment points attach like towards the front of the hip as well as the back. And so this muscle is constantly working to kind of help shift weight side to side and keep your pelvis neutral. It's one of those muscles that keeps that pelvis kind of level, though we should see the pelvis slightly shift down. Like we don't want to see it stay perfectly level when we're running. I think that's a big misconception. Um, it shouldn't stay completely level. There should be a slight kind of like hip shift, but that muscle helps to work with that pattern and it helps to kind of rotate and helps uh, shift you onto one side. And the other thing that it does is it helps to flex your leg as you're going through like swing phase and it helps to pull back your leg as like you're pulling your leg through through stance phase. Um, And it's a big muscle group that is also super important in terms of like helping like your hip and your knee and your foot kind of track forward over each other. A lot of people worry about like the knees diving in. And again, the, the thought, the traditional thought pattern is like, oh, let me do a bunch of clamshells and lateral band walks and these things that like work on pulling my knee out, pulling my knee out. But what we actually need to also work on is learning how to lengthen and load through that adductor to control that force of us landing. How often do you see somebody come to you for help and they've kind of self-identified a weakness and and gotten so strong in that one area that they have essentially overbalanced their ability in another area. Like I'm thinking of somebody says, "Uh oh, my glute meads are weak," and then they're all they're obsessed with strengthening their glute meads and to the exclusion of other muscle groups. Is it yeah. possible that that muscle group could like overbalance and overpower the rest of the working musculature? Um, as I mean, glute meads are usually pretty hard to like essentially like increase activation because you have to be in like the right leverage position because it's a relatively small muscle group, but glutes in general, quads in general, like those are very large muscle groups. And so, yes, I often see a lot of times, like people are so over-focused on activating their quads and activating their glutes, but specifically activating those muscles in more of a shortened position. And so something that I wanted to make sure that people understood in this podcast was When we look at muscles, one, we should see that to be able to shorten a muscle, to be able to see a muscle shorten and contract, like if I contract my bicep and it shortens, um, or I contract my quad and you see like the muscles kind of flex, to be able to do that, my muscles need to be able to lengthen. 
And this is not lengthening like stretching. This is lengthening under tension and load. So that would be considered an eccentric exercise. A stretch is essentially taking like a loose elastic band that doesn't have any tension and just like pulling on it. And like, there's no kind of recoil happening there. That's what stretching is. Um, does it feel nice? Sure. Does it really help? Maybe. Is it something that we have to do? I don't know. <laughs> um, there's a lot of like conflicting research out there and like I'm not a huge proponent of uh, or I'm a huge proponent of dynamic stretches but not necessarily static stretches. Um, and all of my clients will know that. But in terms of like learning how to lengthen under load, so doing eccentric exercises where you're lengthening that muscle under tension so you can think of like a squat or a deadlift, that down motion or that down, that backward motion, that's the things that we need to be working on to learn how to lengthen those uh, muscles so that they then can contract. Because this translates specifically into running. And this is the second thing that I wanted people to understand. Running requires a lot of elastic energy, meaning we need that taut elastic to be able to pull out and then recoil really quickly. How do we get that? We work on eccentrics and then concentric motion. Um, and a lot of people focus more on the concentric. So they focus more on the power, the propulsion, and that is important. But if you don't lengthen and load first, which is what happens in the gait cycle when you land, you're not gonna be able to push off effectively because you're like, you can't shorten your muscle anymore because you've constantly shortened it in all the exercises that you've been doing. And so that's where people need to focus more on the eccentrics or isometric exercises, because even though isometrics are holding a position and creating muscle tension without seeing length change, microscopically, we are seeing length change, but we just can't see it to our naked eye. But microscopically, we do see that length change. And that's why we see a lot of tension and force production um, essentially created with those types of exercises. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Thinking about the function of the knee and obviously knowing how many attachment points and how integral it is to our movement, it, it now I'm, I'm seeing very clearly makes sense to me that all of this activation, the concentric, the eccentric uh, contractions that we do in running, like your knee is involved in yeah. all of this. It's really important that we understand that. Yeah. Your knee is, your knee is such an efficient joint to help transfer load. So I, I honestly see the, the, the knee as this powerful joint that helps to transfer load from your foot to your pelvis and your pelvis to your foot. And if you are overloading that joint because you're not getting that efficient co-contraction happening through the other muscles. Yeah, of course, it's going to be a little bit kind of like sticky and it's not going to feel so great. Interesting. All right. So, so how does this all work then? Like, what do we need to know? Uh, so, I mean, ideally, like 
starting out and learning how to find a position, hold a position and like essentially isolate those muscles specifically in the posterior chain is huge. I often, like I said, start people on the floor doing hamstring exercises and then I'll bring in, I mean, even doing that uh, hamstring bridge exercise that I mentioned before, you come into a single leg position and you keep more pressure through like your midfoot and into that inner arch of your foot. You're also going to get your inner thigh with that. Um, same thing when you're doing the squat motion as well. You're also going to get your inner thigh by activating and squeezing. Um, that's usually where I start people is like on the floor. Can we even just like get this co-activation? And then we'll go up into like actual weight bearing positions that are going to simulate more of the running kind of movement. And that's either doing squats, really focusing on that eccentric control, keeping your torso as upright as possible. That's probably another thing that like is a misconception. A lot of people are told constantly to push your hips back when you squat. I teach runners how to keep their torso over their pelvis so they can essentially bring their pelvis like straight down. The thing that's moving out of the way is your knees and your knees are going to go forward. Your knees are going to translate forward over your feet so that you're actually learning how to, again, load into those feet and use those feet to propel you and push you out of that position. So this as we as we think about, you know, Instagram uh, strength videos, the whole never let your knee go past your toes thing does not apply to runners. Because if we think about what a runner is doing, your knee is obviously going past your toes in a contracted right in a in a position where you are generating force or like like all like. So if we have a bunch of runners who are in the gym doing squats, terrified to let their knees go past their toes, they're essentially not training in a way that's as sport specific as it needs to be. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, knees over toes is important for like everybody, regardless if you're a runner or not, because how else are you going to like put on your shoes one foot at a time? How are you going to get up and down from a toilet? How are you going to walk downstairs? Knees over toes is a natural position. Where that cue of not letting your knees pass your toes came from was essentially for acute, meaning like pain that started in the last three months, and severe, meaning like these this pain is essentially like 8 out of 10, 9 out of 10, 10 out of 10. So of course, in those periods, we want to limit range of motion. We want to decrease essentially the sensitivity of the joint. And so we're going to essentially take some of that load away from the knees and put it more into the hips. But eventually we need to start retraining that motion when the pain starts to come down. And that's where it was almost like this game of telephone, like, oh, this cue is amazing. Let me start using it. But no one ever like took the second part of the message and utilized that moving forward. So now people only hear the first part and they're like, but I've always been told to never let my knees pass my toes. And I'm like, then how have you walked downstairs your entire life? Because <laughs> you like you need to be able to have your knees past your toes. Um, and that's also something that like, okay, we talked about how to train that in a squat. You then train that into like a split squat or a forward lunge position. You train that also in a lateral lunge position, curtsy lunge, all of those types of things. 
that context of that cue seems massively important. Like if you have a <laughs> totally uninjured runner in the gym doing squats, that's very different from somebody who's experiencing like acute onset of knee pain. That is mm-hmm. like seven or eight out of 10. Yeah. Vastly different situations. And like, if we take it into a whole other context of like, okay, maybe we're using that cue for like power lifters, weight lifters. Again, makes sense for that population because if they're trying to lift the max amount of weight, if they're trying to lift the heaviest amount of weight, they're going to want more of their back extensors and their glutes on. So they do want to shift your weight back. They do want to get more of those hips and back extensors on and keeping their knees more perpendicular to the, the ground. But they're not runners. <laughs> Maybe some of them are, but they're not endurance runners that need to, they're not training the same things. Um, so that's where the training stimulus that you are doing in the gym matters as a runner in terms of like, you should be doing run specific strength and things like that. Thinking about the way that we talk about our knees, I, I kind of get the sense that a lot of people have been told or have picked up implicitly that our knees are like this fragile joint that we are like terrified of hurting or like, oh, I have bad knees. My dad has bad knees. My sister has bad knees. Like our knees are bad. You know, everybody's knees. Be careful with your knees. Be, you know, mm-hmm. um, and and so that leads to a lot of like just misunderstanding about the ways that we should be training our knees. Because if we're terrified of hurting our knees, we actually might be doing ourselves a disservice and setting ourselves up to actually experience knee injuries. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, those people that say like, oh, my dad had bad knees. My mom has bad knees. Everybody has bad knees. Again, maybe it's because of the way that like the movement patterns that have been kind of like essentially passed down in your family. And this like, again, kind of just altered way of thinking about how to move and not letting your knees bend or not training how to let your knees bend. Now, granted, I'm not saying for somebody that has never trained this before to just start doing like excessive knees over toes exercises. No, that's probably going to aggravate you the same way that like jumping from zero miles to 30 miles one week is also going to aggravate you. When I had knee pain when I was younger, I couldn't do those things either. And like, there was a point in time in which I started with having to keep that range of motion limited and not going so far past my, my toes. I have slowly trained that over, over time and gotten stronger with it. First, just working on body weight and then lightweight and then moderate weight and then building up the sets and the reps and gotten to that point. So like, it takes time. It takes literally like decades to like create that strength and resiliency just like the same way that we see with with just like running in progress in general those that are gaining that amount of progress have been doing it for years upon years the same things over and over and over again i want to ask a question just because for my own clarification because i'm curious knowing so we have muscles our bones attached to our muscles with tendons and that's you were saying the musculo musculo tendinous uh, junction junction. so freaking cool i'm thinking though ligaments attach bone to bone okay i'm thinking as we are as we are we're talking about strength as we're talking about you know improving our ability to tolerate higher levels of load My question to you is, does muscular strength, like the rate at which that develops, 
versus the uh, ability of the tendon to handle greater load. Do those train in lockstep with each other? No, okay. that's actually a fabulous question. Like, I love that you were like, <laughs> Dirt off we're the trying shoulder. To, you're like trying to put this together right now. Yeah, no, they don't. Um, so because of the fact that, um, so mus- muscles, let's like, just like break it down, obviously. And like, we're not going to go super scientific here so everybody can understand, but muscles, like they have a huge amount of blood supply our connective tissue, ligaments, tendons, um, does not. That's why we see it when like cadavers and like it's white because there's not a huge blood supply there. So we're going to see muscular development and muscle changes a lot faster than we see strength and resiliency changes in the tendon. It's just not going to happen at the exact same time. Now, I don't want to get into like specifics of timelines there because everybody's going to be a little bit different, especially if you have a history of like a tendonitis or a tendon, like an injury to your tendon. Um, But you need to give it that amount of time. Now, we usually see, typically, we usually see muscular strength changes starting at about eight weeks. Tendons, three months or longer. It can sometimes take, if you have essentially also that like history of an injury as well to those tendons. And so it takes a lot of patience and time. It takes a lot of like repetition of the same exercises over and over again to be able to tolerate the same loads. And so you do have to be careful of like how much you're kind of progressively overloading over time to make sure that there's not too much kind of like essentially happening in the muscles that the tendons aren't going to be able to absorb. Um, I see this a lot in kids. So like prepubescent, pubescent teenagers, if you think about like osteo, um, oh my God, uh, Ashgood slaughters, uh, where the tendon is essentially pulling on the attachment site of like your tibia and you get like this bump on the top of your tibia. I actually have it in my left knee. Essentially what's happening during that is your muscles, your bones are changing length. Your muscles are changing length. There has to be a different load and force tolerance to essentially uh, kind of move through that arc of motion. And you're not kind of strength training at the same rate at that is happening because sometimes kids grow like five, 10 inches in like one summer. And so like, of course, their body is going to be achy because their tendons haven't caught up to what the changes have happened in their bones and in their muscles during that time. That is fascinating. Um, and, and I think that may help explain for some people, talking, referring back to, to knee issues and knee pain, that if we're dealing with, uh, like, okay, we're rehabbing the thing, right? And we're working on our strength and full symptom resolution can take time because not all of these uh, uh, tissues are changing at the same rate. And we essentially need to get to a point where they've all changed enough so that it makes a difference, but that can take months in some cases. Yeah. A majority of the people that I work with. So like I work with people on a very frequent basis for the initiation of like their sessions. And that initial like point is like the point where we get them pain-free. But like I explained to them very quickly, like just because we're pain-free at this point, because your bot, like I always kind of like go off this idea that if you give your body an inch, it'll take it a mile. Like our bodies are very efficient and like you give it just a little bit and it's like, oh my God, I can do so much with this. Um, But 
we can reduce symptoms and help kind of pain symptoms relatively quickly with somebody that has had like an acute or even chronic like knee pain. But, and that's with like a lot of management of load and like progressive return to running and things like that, not just exercise. But people continue working with me for like another three to four months afterwards. Um, So the total time that they end up working with me is like around six months because of the fact that like it's in those after stages of like those first four to six weeks that we're working on building that resiliency. We're working on building that strength. We're translating all of those things that we initially learned to help us stay pain-free and to like improve that mind-body connection between the foot, the knee, the pelvis, and the brain. Um, and we're translating that to like higher level strength exercises. And that that is what takes time. And then actually seeing the strength gains from doing those forms of exercises takes time. And then seeing the tendons actually be able to tolerate those increases of load takes time. So I have a question then. If it, if it takes weeks to really see actual changes in our ability to, to build strength, um, why is it that I could walk into my home gym today, you know, let's say squat 80 pounds, and then next week I could do 90, and the next week I can do 100. Is that actual strength gains, or is that more about, like, my ability to just recruit more muscle fibers? So, good question. You're probably not starting at, like, your max rate, like, weight. So that's the reason why you can increase the amount of weight that you're using. Um, That being said, like, when I kind of write a strength program for a runner, they're going to kind of maintain weight and work on like actually increasing repetitions with that weight so that they can build form and increase muscle fiber recruitment and things like that. And then like, so that it becomes a little bit more incremental. I think that's again, like not a mistake, but a challenge where people think, oh, I can just like keep upping the weight in what I'm using. And not seeing that there, there actually, again, needs to be like incremental time of, okay, maybe the first week I'm using 80 pounds and we're doing three sets of 10. Second week, maybe we're staying at that 80 pounds, but we're doing three sets of 12, three sets of 14. And then the following week, okay, now we go up to 90, but we drop the weights or we drop the set, uh, the reps and we do three sets of like eight. And then again, we do the following week, 90, three sets of 12. Because that's where you're going to see the benefits in terms of like maintaining form, where if you keep increasing week after week, there's probably eventually like you go up 10 pounds every week. Eventually, there's going to be a week where like your form just crumbles because you're not, again, allowing that kind of like deload. Um, But yeah, so you'll, you'll definitely see strength build in terms of what you can tolerate in a uh, four week period of like doing a strength routine. But when we look at like actually measuring the amount of like force production of a muscle, it usually happens within that six to eight week period that we see that change in muscle strength. That's very interesting. And one of the reasons I asked this is I I recently, somebody asked me a question, um, you know, to the effect of, and I'm paraphrasing here, you know, I started strength training and I was able to go up and wait pretty much like every week. And now I've hit a plateau. Like what's wrong? And it's like, well, nothing, maybe nothing. 
Like going up in weight every single week is actually not, that's not the norm, right? That's because you were new. um, And that's not something you should expect. But I I think it's, and I say this and I, to draw this back to our conversation about knees and kind of like how we, how we tolerate load and all that kind of stuff is that being able to continually increase whatever you're doing, that's not the norm, right? Like your body, your body has a limit with how much you could increase with, and then before it says, okay, hold up, we need to like take a pause here. (laughs) So I love like referring back to, I I like bring up this conversation with my athletes because like I'm going to refer this to like running personal bests or running PRs. There's eventually a point where we can't keep like PRing. Like it then starts to to get harder for us to decrease. We're talking about decreasing time versus increasing weight. But there's a point where it then gets harder for us to build that. And because it takes so much more because we're almost reaching our peak. And that doesn't mean that you've plateaued. That just means that you have this one area that you really need to work on. Um, I mean, you see, like, you look at these professionals and what they're running. Do you think that they are upset about not running a PR when they come in fifth in a marathon? No, they don't care about that because they're still performing at that same level. And there's, again, a range in that. And sometimes it takes years. I mean, again, bring it to like a, I mean, what Molly Seidel just ran a minute something PR in her marathon, but it's been two years since she was able to get to that point. And she had a lot of setbacks during that time. Did she plateau during that time? No, her body just needed to catch up to where like she, her mind maybe mentally was, but like her body wasn't there yet and needed that time to be able to get to that point. So same thing kind of applies in strength training and progressively overloading for like rehab and the knees. You need to kind of see what you're doing. So oftentimes like you're not, you shouldn't be changing exercises every week. You shouldn't be changing exercises necessarily every other week either. If you're doing a strength program, maybe you're changing exercises once a month. And even then, the exercises that you're changing should still have some of like the same movement patterns so that you're working on the same kind of like recruitment patterns that will happen over time. I just, I'm going to just echo what you said. And I, yeah, it's so awesome to see Molly running strong and and feeling good. But like, I know so many runners who, if they ran a minute and change, I forget what her exact PR was. It absolutely was a PR, but it wasn't like 20 minutes faster. But I know runners who would like be weirdly devastated that they only ran one minute faster in the marathon, like, or, you know, or only ran a one minute PR in their half or whatever it was. Obviously for shorter distance, you run like a minute PR in the 5k. That's like, oh, dang, that's actually a huge PR. But like this, this expectation, I know I talk on the show so much about the expectation versus reality. And like the, the expectation that you set for yourself when you're new or returning, like you're going to have these giant gains. Like I remember being a new runner, and literally every time I did a speed workout, I'd PR in some new distance. Like I would, I would PR my mile or I'd PR a 5k. It was just like, because I was just, I had, so like you new. said, so new, I had so much to gain with. So like just adding any stimulus was like a rocket ship and the mm-hmm. fitter that you become, the harder that gets. And so, you know, I think the everyday runner can really learn a lot from elites in that capacity where it's like any, any improve, performance improvement is 100% something, something you should celebrate. Like, even if it's quote unquote 
only a minute in change. Like think about what you did to get yourself to that improvement. Like, yeah, maybe the first between your first and second marathons, you dropped 45 minutes, but that was way back then. And now it's now. And like, you fought hard for that PR. It really, mm-hmm. it, it grinds my gears. People are like, yeah, I ran a PR, but I didn't hit my A-goal. I'm like, okay, you have that backwards. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, um, I absolutely agree. And like, I, I literally tell like my new runners, I'm like, I'm so excited for you because you're going to have so much growth in the next two years. If you stay consistent with this, like you don't even understand how much growth you'll have if you consistently race. The hard thing is, is everybody wants to run a marathon. <laughs> And I love the marathon, but I'm like, you can only do that maybe twice a year and like really race it maybe once during that time. Maybe you're getting that twice in if like you're really good at recovery, but um, you can't get that practice in racing as frequently as you could in like a 5k or a 10k. Like those are going to be the places where you can actually build a lot of aerobic capacity for the marathon. And people don't think that, but you absolutely can. And you're going to see just so much growth by because you're getting more repetition with that. But again, everybody wants to run a marathon and I love marathons. Like I've done five of them. I don't even know how many at this point. Um, <laughs> I've had a couple of DNS, so I'm like, I don't even remember. I think I've trained for like five or six. Um, but the, the shorter races are where you can get that practice and you can get that repetition. And that's going to translate over into those longer races. And you'll see those huge translations in your ability to run fast if you keep going in those first few years. And then after that, it's there's gonna be these lulls because it's very it's like it's very normal to have this up and down kind of like cycle. Like I think every runner goes through that. I'm going through that right now. I haven't PR'd since 2019 and it's 2023. Um, Does that mean that I don't think I'm capable of it? No, I actually do think I'm capable of it. Like if I build my fitness back up, I just haven't had the right race days for it. Like I ran New York last year. It was 70 degrees, 70% humidity. I then decided to like try to run Houston, ended up getting food poisoning and having, having to drop out. And then I had like a lot of life stuff happen. And again, like to compare who I was last year to who I am now, completely different person. Um, but to say that like, I didn't gain anything from all of that training. I absolutely did. I definitely still have the capacity to eventually run that race that I want to race. It's just not a goal right now anymore. Um, and I'm actually looking more to like the faster stuff because like, that's something that I can build my confidence back into to repeat over and over again. Even if I don't get the right race, it doesn't matter because I can race it again in two weeks and like go for it at another time. And I think it, thinking about in the context of like, you know, outside of life that happens, right. And, and bad yeah. race day luck can happen. Oftentimes when a runner experiences an injury, like, and let's say it's a knee injury, cause it gets super common for it to have these, you know, for, for a running related injury to be uh, knee related mm-hmm. is that, uh, you know, a lot of runners don't take the opportunity to look at it as a growth opportunity which I know sounds really weird. And like, we're not trying to be all like woo woo about this. Like, oh, you're injured. Like, look at this as a blessing. Like, it's not what I'm saying, but it's like, look, something happened and you can either learn from this and become more resilient and stronger so that you can learn and grow and become better. Or you can take the mindset of I failed, it failed, I suck, this sucks, screw it. 
Like, yeah. which I know which one that like I would rather a runner pursue. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, so I actually had an injury over the summer and again, like you can, like you said, you can take it as a growth opportunity or you can take it as like a like pity party and absolutely have like, like, I'm not saying people shouldn't like experience that grief and emotions that go with it. Like there were some days that like I leaned on my like partner and like a phone call and I'm like, I'm not making any progress. And he's like, you are like, you just can't see it. You're too thick into it. You're trying so hard and you're doing all the things to help yourself. Like you don't even know how close you are to like getting back to where you were. And he was right. Like within two weeks, I like from that point of like having that like moment of like, I'm trying so hard and like, why isn't this working? At like two weeks later, I was like back to running and like feeling better and like having pain-free runs again. And I'm like, oh, wow. Okay. I was, I was moving forward. So like, yes, absolutely. Take those moments of like expressing grief and like lean on the people around you that are going to support you during those times. But also realize that yes, sometimes these things happen to teach you one, why did this injury happen? And again, people need to be cognizant of the mental, emotional, and physical loads that they're experiencing. So like, I'm honestly surprised that I got injured when I did. I thought I was gonna get injured probably two months before that because I had so much emotional and mental stress from my life and from work that like, I was honestly surprised that I did not get injured until I did. But when I did, I was like, this makes sense. <laughs> like, this was my body's official, like, you need to put a pin in this right now and you need to focus on something else because you are like, you're just keep, you're kind of digging yourself into the ground right now. And it was a forced stop. And your body is really good at that. Your body is really good at giving you essentially those, um, I like to call it like check engine lights, like those little things that pop up that you're like, oh, that didn't feel 100%. And Granted, sometimes like you're going to get like these little like kind of like fluke pains here and there. But like if it keeps happening, like that's essentially your body giving you a check engine light and being like, you need to address this. You either need to decrease the intensity of what you're working at. You need to decrease like your frequency or your mileage or your time on feet. Or you need to focus on the other things to help support how much you're doing right now in terms of like recovery, nutrition, sleep, like stress management. And those things are really hard to kind of balance when maybe life is a lot and life is just like overwhelming. So the easy thing for us to pull back on, and I say easy in terms of like, it's the easiest thing to take away from, but it's not always the easiest thing for us to be like, oh, I have to pull back on this because life is like, life in my body is telling me like, I have too much on my plate right now. Like that's really hard for a competitive athlete or even a recreational athlete to do because a lot of times it's our outlet and our, our ability to like, I wouldn't say escape, but have like selfish time, me time and alone time away from like the things and maybe like get like our mental headspace in order to be able to deal with the things that we need to moving forward. So yeah, these life will kind of deliver you and your body will deliver you a force stop if you need it. And you can either recognize that that force stop happened for a reason and now you have to change gears for a short period of time and focus on what really needs to be a priority in your training. 
and then learn how to continue that into your like future training so that you're not kind of essentially putting yourself in the same hole the next time. Um, a lot of times what I'll see is I'm, a runner is going to get super like serious about strength training and they're going to start strength training like two or three times a week. They get back into running and running's like, oh, well, now I want to run five days a week. And I'm like, do you need to? <laughs> like, what do, you, what do you need? Why do you need to run five days a week? Like, could you just run four and then strength train two and then have an off day? Um, or run three days, bike another day, strength train two days and still have an off day. Um, but a lot of people will then start like just building up with the mileage or the days that they want to run because they want to see the mileage go. They want to see the time on feet go higher and then they end up getting too tired. And so they end up sacrificing the strength training. (laughs) And that's the one thing that's like, that got them to the point of being able to tolerate that. And then it's the thing that they let go of. And then the thing that like, uh, eventually ends up like back in the same cycle. So, and I think it's the importance of communicating, like, you know, we talk about strength training is it's always like, and I've talked about this a lot on the, on the show before about things that are like universal goods, right? Things that are always going to be to your benefit. And like, yeah, strength training is a really good thing and you should be doing it, but it also has an associated cost. It causes fatigue. It's resource intensive. You need recovery from it. And I see a lot of runners who let's say, let's say they're running five days a week. Let's say they're running 35 miles over five days a week. They've been handling that fine. Now they've heard strength training is a pretty good thing. And yeah, they want us to start incorporating it. So what do they do? They take their exact same running schedule, layer on three, one hour full body strength training sessions per week, and then wonder why they're starting to struggle. And it's like, yeah, you who added has this time? Such, and, but it's like, not even just the time. It's like, do you understand how much of an additional Load. stimulus yeah. that you are now requiring your body to recover from? Like mm-hmm. you have, you have to like, there has to be some give and take, right? There has to be that slow loading. And like, yeah, in it, while you are ramping up your strength training, you might need to reduce a running day or like take out a workout or like shorten a day or add a day of cross training instead of running. Like it's the way that I think runners just kind of think, look, I'll just strength train. It'll be fine. It's like that, that is costing you something though, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you're lifting the day before your marathon, that's going to cost you, right? Yeah. So like, think about where is the benefit? How much will it cost? Where does this fit in, in my training week, in my training cycle, in my training year, so I can maximize the, the benefits and minimize the costs? Yeah. Um, and I mean, like I said, like two times a week of strength training, I have some runners that like, I've, I've tried to build them up to the two times and they're only running three times a week. And like, it doesn't work for them, their body, like it's just too much load. And I'm like, all right, like you actually did better when we just did like a mobility day where it's like active dynamic kind of stuff. Um, but it's not like holding load and then another day of strength training and then three days of running. And like, they do great. You brought up a great point of like how to maximize like your strength one. Yeah. Don't just like jump into three times a week of strength training for an hour. Like that's way too much. Like I don't even do that. It's so much. Um, (laughs) It's so much. Um, and that's so tiring. And a couple of things like I wanted to like point on here. I actually just did like one of my podcasts, like on like how to incorporate strength training. And I view strength training as there's a time when it's offensive and then there's a time when it's defensive. There's a time when you're in season versus a time when you are um, out of season. So when you're out of season, you can lift heavier. You can lift more often. You can allow yourself to be a little bit more fatigued 
in your runs because you don't have anything like time-wise that's like time sensitive in terms of a race that you have to be ready for. But as soon as you put a race on your calendar and you're going into a training cycle, and this depends like the distance that you're trying to run, then you're going into, there's a point in which of your training that you have to switch to defensive training. And that defensive training is to maintain and protect. You shouldn't be doing the most amount of things in the weight room at that time. You shouldn't be trying to lift the most amount of weight. You should be just doing things that you know that feel good with moderate to heavy weight. Like we're not dropping the weight completely. So you're still strength training, but moderate to heavy weight. And you're doing that through that period of time to maintain and protect your joints. And this is where like, it's super important to keep your joints feeling like good and strong. Thinking like of a marathon, like those 18, 20 milers that you're doing, you need those things to kind of help you kind of support that. But no, we're not lifting as heavy as we would out of season. We're starting to deload a little bit to allow some energy kind of like saving so that you're not as fatigued in your races or in your workouts during that period of time. Because otherwise, yes, you're going to have too much cumulative fatigue. And that's where, again, a check engine light is going to come on and your body's going to be like, you need to calm down. You need to back off, but you're still ramping up training. And then the wheels are going to come off because you never allowed yourself like that recovery time. The other thing that I wanted to note was you probably hear this all the time. Strength training is going to make me bulky um, and they don't want to lift heavy. Bulkiness doesn't happen overnight. (laughs) Just like running like a sub 25K doesn't happen overnight or running like a 14 minute 5K. Like those things don't happen overnight. Running a three hour marathon doesn't happen overnight or faster than that. Um, Building muscle doesn't happen overnight. So you're yeah, not going to It doesn't happen accidentally. You're not going to wake no. <laughs> up one day and look like a bodybuilder. <laughs> yeah. And again, if you're training like a runner, if you're training those eccentric and isometric things and you're not doing as much like power, Olympic weightlifting, heavy, heavy loading um, movements, you're not going to look like those people. Like you're not supplying yourself with the same demand on your body. So you're not going to look like that. You're just going to look like a strong runner. And on top of that, there's actually a neurological like, um, like circuit break that happens. So you get that stimulus from endurance running, you get that stimulus from heavy lifting and essentially just like negates. So you actually can't build as much muscle as somebody that would just be weightlifting. Like the endurance side of thing actually blocks a little bit of that. Now that doesn't mean you can't build muscle. You absolutely can. That's why we do it more in the off season when your load is a little bit less in the running side of things. So you can build that strength, but you're not going to get the same strength gains. And the other thing that I see that incorporates into this as well, and all this is related to like knee pain and nutrition and things like that and rehab, but runners don't eat enough and don't prioritize protein enough to get that and to build as much muscle as they need. Like talking about adding three hours of strength training onto your schedule and you're already running four or five days a week, um, you need to increase the amount of calories that you're eating. You need to increase the amount of protein that you're eating to essentially combat how much, again, energy you are outputting with that additional kind of 
uh, load that you're, you're taking on in your training cycle. The biggest mistake, and all of this is related to the knee pain and the rehab stuff. Like I, we, I promise, it's all related, right? This all, yeah. all counts. Is We've that, gone on tangents, but right. like it's all, it, it's all so important. <laughs> you want strong and healthy knees. This is this is how you get them, right? This yeah. is how you do it. Um, is that you know, thinking back to what you were describing? I first of all, I have to. I haven't heard that episode of yours yet. The offensive dirt versus defensive strength training. It's like a brilliant way of thinking about it. Mm-hmm. The biggest mistake that I see runners make, and I've been guilty of this too, is simply not understanding how much time it genuinely takes to get the get to the place that we're trying to go and trying to do it, trying to cram it into a very foreshortened timeline yep. um, or trying to do everything all at the same time. Yep. And like, as we described earlier in this episode, thinking about, you know, how long it takes for your tendons to adjust to that, how long it takes for your muscles to blah. I, we did it recently an episode on bone health, like how long it takes your bones to remodel, right? Like you literally cannot do this overnight. And if you try to cram what should be 12 to 18 months of structured periodized training into four and a half months, because you decided you really did want to sign up for that marathon after all, like either you're going to underperform or you are going to hurt yourself, right? Yeah. Or you might have a pretty good race day, but it's an unsustainable load of training. Mm-hmm. Just because you manage to handle it for a very short period of time doesn't mean that's something your body will be able to handle if you if you squeezed if that you much stuff it. if you keep doing it in the future. And that's yeah. when I typically see people get into trouble. Oh, yeah. I, I love when runners come to me and they're like, a big one is like talking about nutrition in like long, long distance, um, running, whether that's like people don't fuel in their long runs or they don't fuel in their marathon. And they're like, but I didn't do it then. And like, I got this PR and like, I felt fine. And I'm like, let's view this as like the exception that your body got away with this, that you got away with this, this one time. And now this is the second time that you've done it and you bonked it's because your body realized that like, this is not a sustainable thing for it to be able to do. Like it doesn't have the reserves. It doesn't have the load tolerance. It doesn't have the, the ability to keep doing this over and over again at this intensity. So like that was the exception to the rule, not the rule, like to perform your best. And like, we literally see this with like people that are running their best right now. Like they are fueling like monsters during their races, um, to be able to, utilize that fuel literally in the moment and like propel themselves forward so like there is there is the rule but those exceptions that happen you're just you're just getting lucky like that's that's truly what's happening and again it's not sustainable like eventually your body will catch up and be like you need to stop like and it's gonna give you some red flags it's gonna give you those check engine lights to turn on and like let you know and if you keep ignoring them that's when things are gonna happen and like Injuries are going to occur. Burnout is going to occur because you're not able to sustain that level of activity. And the injury one is a huge one. Like, you know, injuries happen, right? Like it's not necessarily anybody's fault. Like sometimes these things just happen. But if you are consistently deprioritizing recovery, if you're not eating enough, if you're not sleeping enough, if you're not taking your easy runs easy enough, if you're not strength training and you keep getting injured, like at that point it has to be 
hey, okay, maybe there are some things that I need to change about my training. Because like the whole point of why we are talking about this is because we want you to run as much as you want to run, right? Like if it is your goal to run five days a week or six days a week or run that marathon or run that 800 or whatever it is, but to do it healthy and pain-free, you have to be able, you have to give your body the resources that it needs so that you can go do these things. Mm -hmm. And so they don't have to keep going to PT. They don't have to keep rehabbing injuries cycle after cycle after cycle. Yeah. And again, like, I think the biggest thing is like, again, these things take time. Um, I had a like semi-professional athlete come and like talk to a group of runners at like a local run store. And like, I made him highlight this because like, I had him like talk about like his career from like, uh, like beginning of high school to now and he's in his mid twenties. And so it was like a 10 year period, 12 year period. And like his 5k PR, like chunk wise in terms of like the minutes that he really dropped, like it looks big. But then when you look down at like the actual per mile pace, his mile, his per mile pace only dropped. And I say only, but it only dropped like 90 seconds, two minutes. And that took 12 years, (laughs) 12 years to get him to that point. And this is a semi-professional athlete that's literally doing this full time that like has the like more availability for recovery and all these things. And so you have and the to genetics get, and like, genetics. Yeah. yeah. And genetics like cause, all like things. <laughs> yeah. So like it but it took him 12 years to get to that point. So to expect ourselves to get to that point so quickly and not give us that time like we need that time to improve. We need that time to, to adapt to the loads that we're putting on our body because otherwise, yes, injuries are going to happen over and over again. And every time you try to ramp up, you're going to ramp up too quick and everything's going to need to be shut down again. And then you're going to have this up and down cycle versus if you slowly ramp up, slowly build up the amount of mileage intensity that you're doing, adding in strength training slowly slowly building one habit at a time, then you're going to have more longevity. And being an injury-free or resilient runner isn't about never getting injured. I'm a PT and I still get injured. It's about decreasing that amount of time between when the injury happened to when you can return to running. How quickly can we get you to be so, well, one, how can we make you proactive and making sure that your training is kind of like already built to essentially help support if an injury does happen. So I've always like, one of my big goals this year was for even me to consistently strength train twice a week. Like no no exceptions, you're doing some form of strength training twice a week, even if it's like 15 minutes one day. And I've held myself to that. I'm like really proud of even myself doing that. Um, But because I've sustained that habit, when I did get injured this year, I didn't have to change too much of what I was doing. I essentially figured out what type of runs that I could still do pain-free because I realized that like these runs I could do pain-free. And so like, I'm still going to continue running if it's pain-free, but there were certain runs, like it was hill runs and trails felt pain-free for me. So I continued to do those things. Flat running, downhill running, wasn't really the greatest for me unless I was like kind of like bobbing and weaving. So I didn't do those things. And instead I, when I was like scheduled to run, I would bike. And so I just switched modes, continued keeping that mode high of like aerobic activity. 
And then I continued strength training, but then I just kind of geared strength training towards that area that I really needed to work on at that time. And so if you have those proactive habits already built in, it's a lot easier for you to continue forward. And then when something does happen, how quickly will you react to be able to essentially start putting into play what you need to be doing to decrease the load and increase the load tolerance for you to be able to progress back to running. Most times runners will ignore it, continue to run through it, and then they're four weeks, six weeks down the line, and every like then they take one step and it's super painful and they can't run. And it's because they never like they didn't initiate as soon as that pain started. They waited and now it's like 10 times worse because they just ran through it. And so it's about learning like to be proactive as well as immediately reactive when something comes up and they need to be addressing it. And it might sound, I mean, for anybody who's worked with me personally, like, you know, one little thing, like if you write in your comments and final surge, like, yeah, my knee felt a little twingy, you know, one out of 10. I'm like, you know, my knee knee hurt on my run yesterday. Like, you know, crap happens, right? But if I see, you know, if it's, it happens more than once, like once stuff happens, yep. but if it happens the same thing, same sensation, the same place, if it starts popping up more frequently, if you're, then you experience it, you know, maybe, maybe not on easy runs or maybe only on easy runs and not on speed runs, but then it maybe kind of pops up when you're walking down the stairs and then it kind of gets weird. Like for me, the rule is if it happens three times, you need to go to PT. <laughs> yeah. No, that's a great rule yeah. because so if we're thinking about like muscle soreness versus pain, um, muscle soreness is typically going to happen within those first 42, 48 to 72 hours. So it's normal, especially if like you're in a base building phase or you just did a really hard workout and you're in a training phase for there to be some fatigue, neuromuscular fatigue and soreness after that, that's going to maybe not pop up the 24 hours because we have delayed onset muscle soreness. So it may pop up in the 70 or may pop up in the 48 and 72 hour range. That's normal. But then if it's continuing after that third day of that third point and it's still and it's not improving with activity, that's the other thing. Like if it's true, just muscle soreness, it's going to improve with activity. So like you may wake up and be like, oh, like doesn't feel so great. Like I'm pretty sore and like things are tender. But like you start moving around, you start walking around and things get better that's a good sign that like it's truly just like muscle fatigue but if it gets worse after those 72 hours and it's not going away or it's just lingering at this like low level ache then that's probably a sign that there's something starting to brew and we need to address that and like you said this all comes back to building like learning learning what you need learning how you need to support yourself to accomplish the goals you're trying to accomplish and learning how to listen to your body in a way that you can be proactive, not reactive. Yep. Which yep. takes time, right? You're always going to oh, become yeah. an expert overnight. Sometimes this takes years to figure out and you're going to make a ton of mistakes along the way, right? Hopefully they're minor, but you know, the best way that we can turn an injury or an issue into something that becomes a positive if we can learn the lesson, learn the lessons and carry them forward. Yeah. And something my parents like taught me and like this wasn't like applicable, like necessarily like directly to running. It was just a like life lesson is like life is going to keep giving you the same problem or the same thing to pop up until you learn that lesson. 
And that can happen also in running. So if you keep getting a certain injury, if you keep having something happen over and over again, life is trying to teach you a lesson and you need to learn it or it's going to keep happening. And if you keep having to kind of like, again, stop, start, stop, start. Yeah, that's going to essentially create burnout because you're tired of doing that. So like you need to just essentially accept what you have to kind of do to move forward. And it's not easy. And I say all of these things because I've had so many injuries over the years. I had so many injuries in like my knees constantly hurt me in high school, constantly had knee pain in high school. Didn't know why, but I wasn't strength training at the time. Went into college, was also having knee pain, also having hip pain. Didn't know why, but started working on strength training more. And guess what? My my things went away. And then I went into grad school and I was like, oh, I can specialize this more and actually like figure out what the body actually needs and understand the mechanics and the type of muscle activations and things behind it that are really going to help a runner to be durable as well as powerful. And that's where like that built. So like I come from this place in a place where I like so, so much empathy because I don't want people to feel what I felt because I was told that I'm not built for running. I was told that I should probably just quit competitive running at the age of like 20 years old (laughs) and like that I was too old for running. Literally at 20 years old, I was told that I was too old for competitive running. And I'm like, no, (laughs) that doesn't make sense. Like I'm not, I'm not even in my prime. Like, what are you talking about? Um, So I understand because I've been told these things too. I've experienced a lot of these injuries too. And there is another side to this and it takes time and it doesn't mean that these things won't happen. There's still things that I have to be super diligent about in my own training to prevent injury from occurring. But I've learned over years and years and years and multiple instances of life teaching me a lesson of like, you need to recognize that this is what's happening right now. Um, And you need to back off or I'm going to tell you to back off and being proactive versus reactive constantly. Lauren, thank you so much for being here today. We're out of time, but I wish we could keep going. You might have to come back for another appearance, make it a repeat. (laughs) Uh, If somebody is looking for that next level of help, guidance, assistance, where can they reach out to you? Yeah, so um, I am on Instagram. My handle is the personalized running doc. Um, DM me over there, say hi. If you really loved the podcast, like, let me know. I would love to hear from you guys. If you have questions, you can just shoot me a message there. Um, if you're interested in working with me, you can DM me and I can send you the link to, um, a free discovery call. I do a discovery call with anybody interested in working with me. It's a 45 minute call. We go over your injury history, your current running experience and your goals. And then we can talk about from there, which, program I have that would be the best fit for you. I have kind of the pain management side of things. And then I have the run coaching and strength training and like kind of health and wellness side of things as well. So whatever is your need, we'll kind of figure that out on that call and we can move forward from there. And I'll put those links below in the show notes and also the link to those two exercises, the isometrics that you were describing earlier. So if people haven't been able to quite visualize that or in the mind, they can take a look at your video and understand how that's supposed to work. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great talking with you. I 
hope you've enjoyed this episode. Don't forget, you can always find and follow me on Instagram at Running Explained. And if you're looking for a coach or a training plan, check me out. Visit my website, runningexplained.co. That's runningexplained.co. See you next time. This content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you have regarding a medical condition.